0: Welcome to a special edition of Clerically Speaking. I'm Father Harrison on my own, as you may have heard last week. Father Anthony uh, went behind my back and got the guys from the Crunch podcast to come on without bringing me on. So in order to pay him back, I brought on... Uh, some people who I wanted to bring on who I was like I was very excited when this opportunity jumped towards me uh, from St. Bernard's uh, School of Theology. Uh, so we have today with us uh, Matthew Kuhner, Lisa Lacona, and Daniel Drain uh, from from the school to talk about their conference on communion. And we're going to talk about communion stuff in general, uh, theology and holiness, technology, a little bit of everything. It's going to be a lot of fun. So I have to pay Father Anthony back for this. So welcome uh, all three of you to Clerically Speaking.
1: Thank you.
2: Thank you Thank so you. much, Father. Great to be here. <laughs>
0: So uh, why don't we just start off maybe um, with just a brief intro from each of you, like who you are, what you do, what, what, what your interests are in theology, et cetera. Uh, yeah, we'll start with you, Matthew.
2: Sure, sure. So Dr. Matthew Kuhner here, Vice President and Academic Dean at St. Bernard's and then also Assistant Professor of Systematic Theology. Um, I studied uh, Philosophy and Theology at DeSales University in my for my undergrad then uh, I graduated from the MTS program at the John paul II Institute for Studies in the Marriage and the Family in 2013. And then went on uh, to study uh, systematic theology in the PhD program at Ave Maria University. And I wrote under Dr. Michael Waldstein on Balthazar's theology of person and mission. So I think a lot of my interests sort of coalesce around uh, Hans Urs uh, von Balthasar's understanding of person, and then mission as it relates to grace and nature, uh, mission as it relates to sort of the individual charisms in the church, and uh, the relationship between theology and sanctity in general. So that, that's a, a little bit of, of the background, just to throw a few things in there. And yeah.
0: <laughs> awesome. And what about you, Lisa? I want not you introduce yourself to the, to the fine listeners?
1: Okay, thank you. Uh, my name is Lisa Lacona. I'm Assistant Professor of Systematic Theology here at St. Bernard's um, undergraduate, since we're going all the way back there, Notre Dame, um, graduate, master's, uh, and licentiate from the John Paul II Institute, and um, then after that, I took a, a bit of a hiatus, or maybe I went on with my education. Maybe that's another way to think of it. I um, was at home for many years. Uh, I have eight children, that, um, and I had a farm in that time, an organic farm. And then a few years ago, was able to come back to theology, which has been a great joy for me, um, and joined the faculty here at St. Bernard's, which has been super exciting Um, In that time, I actually became the editor for Saints at Magnificat. Um, I spent eight years writing and researching daily. So this was like being a mom and like, you know, (laughs) 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 writing and researching from home. So it's been really awesome for me to have this opportunity to kind of bring my encounters with the Saints uh, and their lives into, uh, you know, kind of really place it into this, matrix of theology, which is, um, you know, I know we're going to be talking about this, the whole issues uh, surrounding theology and holiness, theology and sanctity. So that's kind of where I'm at in terms of research is trying to bring these things together.
0: Great. Awesome. Thanks, Lisa. And Daniel.
3: Thank you. Yeah, I'm Daniel Drain. Uh, I'm an administrator and also a lecturer in pastoral theology here at St. Bernard's. Uh, also so that, earned-
0: that, that, that's fake theology, right? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I kid I kid, I kid, I kid, I kid, I kid, I kid.
3: That's fired. Oh man. <laughs> um, also earned my undergraduate at DeSales University, went on for the masters at the John Paul II Institute, and am currently writing a dissertation, uh, under the direction of Dr. Nicholas Healy on, um, On the relationship between finite and infinite freedom uh, in Christ's descent into hell. So the work of Hans Urs von Balthasar on that question. I've been very busy the last couple of years, uh, both starting my own family, but also dealing with David Bentley Hart, most basically. (laughs) Um, So my my concerns are around universal salvation, Christ's descent into hell, understanding um, an authentic meaning of human freedom. Uh, academically and teaching-wise, also a focus on eschatology more broadly, but um, the interpretation and implementation of the Sacramental Council as well. Those are those are kind of my chief things. Yeah. Cool. Awesome.
0: So uh, you guys are putting on a conference. So uh, full disclosure, like I was very. Ex- I remember seeing an issue. I'm like, man, that looks amazing. And there's no chance I'm going to be able to go out because, <laughs> like, if you don't know, we we have very few priests in my diocese right now. Like. 18 active priests in 35 parishes and it's just we're really tight on priests here uh i was like there's just no chance there's no chance but uh thanks then actually you guys were on larry chap's thing i'm like i have to go i have to go and so you guys are putting on this conference on the 50th anniversary of of communio uh the the starting of the journal communio at least right the the school of theology is much broader than just the journal obviously but you're you're putting on this conference with some great speakers and and a lot of, uh, I think what excites me a lot actually about the conference too is seeing all the other theologians who are coming, who are maybe like some of the younger communal theologians, et cetera. I'm like, this is going to be just a great gathering of people. I'm just, it's going to be a party. It's going to be great. Uh, so, uh, so I'm going and I'm very excited to go. And I just thought maybe you guys can just tell us a little bit about this conference. Why, why are you doing it? Why you think it's important. And then maybe a little bit like, what is communal theology? Like listeners know that this is also a, a school of thought I am very much into. I'm doing my PhD on Ratzinger. Uh, so who was one of the founders of Communion. And uh, uh, this is this something that's near and dear to my heart personally? I think, I think communio theology is vital to the life of the church. I think to Daniel's thing, I think it is helpful in understanding the second Vatican council. Um, so I'm very excited for all this, but yeah, with, with his communio theology, why are you doing this conference and and why do you think it's important for people to want to take interest in this conference
2: wonderful maybe i'll start off with just a couple of details about its origin at st bernard's so September 30th to October 2nd will be this conference over the duration of a weekend. And it was one of these amazing things where it was very providential because we were talking about doing this because obviously so many of us are so indebted to community of theology in general. Our education has been characterized by the form of communio of thoughts so on and so forth. And we we're like, oh, we should do this because it's the 50th anniversary. Can you believe it's 50 years already since 1972? And so we were sort of putting some feelers out there, sent invitation emails for keynotes. Five really, really heavy hitting keynotes, right? Jean Duchesne, Jean-Luc Marianne, David Schindler, Tracy Rowland, and then Father Jacques Survey. And we sent these out and within two weeks, we got positive responses from all of them, which it took <laughs> to be extremely providential. because if you ever put on a conference before, you know, that doesn't always happen, right? You have to wait a lot longer or it's hit or miss. So we were just so, so pleased. And then we put out the secondary call for papers, right? For all the breakout sessions. And boy, oh boy, Father Harrison, I think you're exactly right. I mean, people would come just to see those breakout theologians Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, people in catechetical ministry giving talks as well. So so what a gift that is. So it's going to have like a multifaceted feel, right? You're going to have the amazing sort of anchored keynote lectures. And by the way, those, those uh, keynote speakers that I just listed, many people know them for their philosophical and theological output, but not as many people recognize how vital pretty much all of them were to the founding of the journal itself, right? Which we can get into in, in a minute or two, but uh, but Jean Duchesne and Jean-Luc Marianne are essentially the two founders of the French communio, the French language mm-hmm. edition. So just to say, they're gonna be giving a lot of stories about the origins, hearing about the 1970s sort of historical milieu in which this was taking place. So in any case, and that's going to be a beautiful experience. But then you're also going to get all of this incredible other discussion about both appreciating the past, but then looking to the future. What does the mm-hmm. future hold for community of theology? Because you do have a number of young representative scholars, and and then also just people in the life of the church, uh, working on behalf of the church that are sort of imbibing all of this from the past and then carrying it forward into the future. So that's a little bit of how it's, it's, it's a votive uh, offering of, of mm-hmm. thanks on our part, mm-hmm. but then also, you know, okay, what can we do to sort of lay foundations for communion moving into the future?
3: Great. And just to, just to say, Matthew, um, follow up on that. So there's in-person registration for the conference, obviously here in Rochester, New York, which is a beautiful place to come see. But the whole conference is also available via our Zoom uh, live streaming capabilities for uh, a, a much lower and accessible cost. So anyone on the West Coast or, or who otherwise can't travel, um, very cheaply you can attend this conference and hear every bit of it and even interact with the speakers we're, we're able to to generate conversation that's rather seamless between all parties so mm-hmm. please come on in even you know even just to pay and attend some of saturday would be like excellent
0: mm-hmm. for people yeah, yeah. maybe uh, what makes uh, saint bernard's uh like what would like It's uh, because you guys are like a smaller school, right? Like you're not, Mm -hmm. you're not CUA or anything like that. Um, What makes, why why do you think it's important that St. Bernard's is hosting this? And maybe at least we could start with you on that one. Like, like why why do you think St. Bernard's is important for this? Because I mean, I think actually already just hearing you guys talk in different places and seeing some stuff, I think I have some ideas, but it's good to kind of give a voice to what you guys do. What's unique about St. Bernard's and how you guys approach theology and stuff like that.
1: No, that's a really great question. I'm going to try to, put an answer together with your previous question, which is what is community ecclesiology? Because yeah, it's a really big question. And actually, um, Matthew and Danny, I'm sure can come in on this and really augment anything I would say. But, you know, if you go onto the website for our, our conference, you see these pictures of three people, right? So, um Cardinal Ratzinger, aka Pope Benedict, Hanor Strom Balthazar, and Henri de Lubach. And um, so this journal, this theological journal, was really born of a friendship, right? Mm-hmm. And um and it was and it was born with the idea that the church is a friendship. If you want to use that word friendship to be another way to say communio or communion, right? And um so for for the founders, the church, the 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 church is fundamentally something, it's not it's not a political reality, right? It's a it's an it's its own reality, which is founded from above by God, who is himself a communion of life and love in the Trinity. And it's meant to be a life of a communion of life and love. And so for the for the founders of Communio their their goal after the second vatican council was really to try to bring into being a conversation that were would reflect the church's Communion, and so in in a way it was a reaction you could say i mean to the idea that you know the church is a political reality and it's all and all conversations are like conservative versus liberal right like who's who's going to win out here right this is not i this is, there's something else that we're going for in the church's communion and so I guess that this is something that we're living a lot here at St. Bernard's I see, and it's, and it's mysterious, but, um, you know, we, many of us who teach here have this background in this communion ecclesiology, but I would say what it is, what's more profound is that we're living a communion here as, um, as scholars. So we really want to bring forward this idea of the church's communion and, um, and you know, in a way that transcends you know a left-right paradigm. So, mm-hmm. um, deepen the conversations with the culture with this um, th- with this understanding. So I think I think of the fact that three of us are here says a lot. Like, well, this mm-hmm. is not a this is not a one-person thing. This is not one person driving you know this idea. But we're mm-hmm. living this, and we wanted to open this possibility up for other people. Um, to join, and you know, like I love the idea of the party because you know that's really mm-hmm. what the opinion ultimately is. Yeah,
0: exactly. exactly.
1: <laughs> I mean, you know, obviously we have to make distinctions and stuff. Yes. But um. But anyway. I mean, I mean the
2: you're, journal was founded. You're
1: moving toward it there. So. Right. Yeah. Right.
2: It was founded in what an Italian cafe, right on the Via. On the <laughs> yeah. So, so I mean, in that sense, it doesn't get much more uh, <laughs> friendship-based, party-based than that. But that's wonderful. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: So yeah. Uh, so anyway, yeah. but but yeah. My colleagues can can fill that out.
2: No, and that's lovely, and and I love. I mean, so some of I just want to direct your listeners. Um, the the fall nineteen ninety two uh, volume of Communio I think is really really key. If you want to get a flavor of some of the founding documents of Communio and some of the founding ideas and historical. Um, sort of milieu that was surrounding the founding that's that's actually the what the 20th anniversary uh, volume where they're sort of celebrating 20 years of communio you have pieces by Ratzinger in there and you also have some mission documents from Balthazar in there because in some sense Ratzinger comments at one point that uh, Hans Balthazar took uh, almost a paternal responsibility for the whole of the project, which is just mm-hmm. beautiful. Um, and so, while Balthazar had this sort of paternal presence, and then you had Ratzinger and De Lubach really supporting, amidst a number of other theological personas that maybe are less uh, well known, uh, nevertheless, they always tried to make this an international, global event to sort of match the church's ecclesiological communio, right? Is something that's that's Catholica, right universal in that sense So i think now there's 13 language editions all over the world for this and and they have this beautiful image of subsidiarity and solidarity where uh, certain articles in the journal would be universally represented among all language editions, but then there would leave room, especially for cultural engagement within the particularities of each mm-hmm. language edition and, and to, to be culturally specific in that way, according to subsidiarity and emphasis on mm-hmm. the local in that way. So it's, so it's quite beautiful the way that it blossomed out towards universality. And I think that was it. I mean, you know, the point that, uh, Lisa, you mentioned, um, Balthazar mentions in one of the the programmatic mission documents, he said The Communio exists negatively to fight against the deadly polarization that threatens the church. Hmm. Isn't that beautiful? You can't be universal if you are fragmented by this deadly polarization. Deadly is, you know, Balthazar can be a little bit hyperbolic, but I actually don't think that he ever means to be hyperbolic. He's actually quite vivid. Um, but, but he's realist, right, in that sense. He thinks that this is actually deadly. And I think that's something that we could really in this moment learn from. And that would be the claim that I would make would be 50 years on, the polarization is no less deadly. So I think that's that's one of the things. But positively speaking, I think if you had to say one thing that uh, the founders of Communio wanted to remind us is that we cannot achieve the movement beyond that deadly polarization ourselves right we can't pull mm-hmm. ourselves up by our bootstraps we can't think up a new church we can't sort of move forward along this sort of evolutionary dynamic
0: can't sing uh, a new I, ch- church into being
2: <laughs> precisely <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Sorry. it is always received no, it's, okay. it's always the contours of wholeness the contours mm-hmm. of something given something that's universal needs to be received from the one who is uh, catholicity in himself right which is god himself so so the proportions of that, the form of that is something first received and then lived out through sacramental participation in the church uh, in, in that sense. And, that, and that's why I think just as Christocentrism uh, is something that's so key to a proper interpretation of the Council, I think Christocentrism is a key tenet of the Communio journal, mm-hmm. that we receive the gift of that universality precisely in the person of Christ and through the sacramental contact with his flesh, with his voice, uh, with his very being, so. But, but Danny, please uh, supplement anything I said, yeah.
3: Yeah, just to, to briefly jump in there. So I'm preparing to teach this course on the Second Vatican Council, which is actually kind of a scary thing to do right now. <laughs> the basic task is to reread the council, at least its, its major constitutions. But I was returning recently, and actually in response to your most recent episode with Father Anthony, uh, Father Harrison, when you guys were discussing, why was the council called? So I was looking at the opening address again, and just to read a couple of brief selections and reflect on that from Pope John XXIII, his opening address to the Second Vatican Council, he's really clear. The major interest of the Ecumenical Council is this, that the sacred heritage of Christian truth be safeguarded and expounded with greater efficacy. So to pause there, Communio is for sure, uh, in some sense, academic in form. It It aims to safeguard and expound with greater efficacy the truths of the Christian faith, right? Hmm. Precisely to go back to the shots you fired earlier on, Father Harrison, precisely to be pastoral, right? That's the first thing. That's why the the Second Vatican Council can be called pastoral, because it's about proposing the Christian truth again. But he says just a little bit further on, and I think this is even more helpful, under a subheading titled, A Fresh Approach. So what's new about the council if it's not meant to, to respond to a particular heresy? John 23rd says, there was no need to call a council merely to hold discussion of that nature. What is needed at the present time is a new enthusiasm, a new joy and serenity of mind. So to call back to the deadly polarization, what we need is a serenity of mind in the unreserved acceptance by all of the entire Christian faith without forfeiting that accuracy and precision in its presentation, Which characterized Trent and the First Vatican Council, right? I think Communio as a journal is, in fact, reflective of that effort, right? Precisely to present it with new enthusiasm and to take this perspective from above of joy and serenity of mind has to be precise has to demand of the reader. And this is reflective of of us as a school as well. I mean, we're a school of theology and ministry, but we teach theology in order to do ministry well. And that's exactly the dynamic, I think, at work in communio. That's also in some sense an apology for how difficult communio can be. It's not not a bug, it's a feature in some sense, right? Mm -hmm. Calling you to a higher perspective precisely as a way of um, seeing the truth more clearly in, in the world today. I mean, the joys and the hopes from Gaudium et Spes, right. Mm-hmm. Are accompanied also by all of these uh, all of these concerns about the forgiveness of God, but you, that, you have to rise up to a certain level to see those things. And that's pastoral to do that.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I have to, I was actually going to ask about that, but you, you preempted me in a good way. Cause I was going to say, yeah, it was, it was a joke obviously. Cause yeah, this is my beef actually is when people say, Oh, People use the excuse that Vatican II is just a pastoral council either to go beyond the text or to reject the text right. as if pastoral is not connected to theology. So you see both the the liberal and the trad reactionism to it as if it's – and they use, uh, they use uh, pastoral as a negative term really mm-hmm. or in mm-hmm. some way or shape or fashion to push their own agenda of things. And I'm like, no, 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 pastoral – and I think this is a great feature of communal theology is that – to be pastoral is to be theological and vice versa, right? Theology and praxis go hand in hand. I remember um, uh, reading um, I, in my intro to this theology class, I, this is, I got exposed, like myself, I got kind of more exposed to communal theology. In my, our, our, my seminary was very communal heavy, <laughs> um, like which I've learned is actually quite rare. Uh, um, Balthazar, Ratzinger, Doulibac, like these were our main figures we read most of the time which was kind of special in many ways. And I remember reading Theology and Holiness by, by Balthasar in my intro to theology class. And I was just like, yes, this is it. This is it right here because it's saying, yeah, the pastoral does go hand, and it has to be informed, like the theoretical and the practical are always feeding each other. It's not one or the other. They're not in like a dialectic against each other. They're in a, they're in a tensive paradoxical relationship that feed and give life to each other, but that this but it's not a closed system right to be catholic is to be universal it's to be open to the whole and the whole has an infinity has a has a has a depth and a breadth that can never be totally exhausted right like i I've re- read i just read a few months ago dc schindler's catholicity of reason it just blew my mind <laughs> underlining I, I swear i like underlined like 60 percent of the book <laughs> it was just like so because but that's just one of his major points is that Reason itself is universal; that it has its boundaries in a way, but it all, but it's also like there is always a something more to go into. And I think this is actually one of the great fruits of ca- of community theology that says, yeah, there is a great rootedness in Christ and in the tradition and in the church, and it develops, but not in this like liberal sense of we can just ignore the past. But it's a it's a past, present, and future that's always in communion with one another. Right. And I think that's such a great, and I think that's what we need today. It gets away from this, this polarization. Um, And you mentioned Matthew uh, about receptivity and this is a, I want to maybe just, I wasn't planning on this, but I think this is actually a good thing to talk about for a moment. Because I think in some ways, this is the reactive, or this is the, not the reactive, but this is the right response to the polarization. Um, I, I, I mean, for I remember reading in Mary Church at the Source by Ratskin, he has this little homily on Mary. Yeah. And he talks, oh man, it's so good. It's, uh, I've quoted it so many times, but he talks about how the West is overly masculine, <laughs> Which would shock a lot of like uh, toxic or not yeah toxic masculinity people like the West isn't masculine enough and he's like no it's too masculine actually and that we need to rediscover the Marian character of the Church and that the Church herself is too masculine mm-hmm. that she's does that doing is put over and against being too <clears> much <throat> and that we need to rediscover not just the Marian character of faith but that the Church herself is a Marian mystery. And I think that's so vital because I think that's actually the first step is this receptivity. What does that look like? Like, like, so you like, you know, maybe, and you can bring in maybe some of your classroom experiences or the culture around the campus a bit with this too. Like, how does this, how does this get formed? Because I think one of the reactive or the the, the counterpoints to this notion of receptivity is it's seen as being overly passive, Mm -hmm. being a doormat, which is not, I mean, it's not the case, but it's seen as that and they don't know what to do like what are the five steps to be more receptive is not a question we should be asking right but people want like how does this look how did how does this get formed how do we build up a kind of culture of receptivity in the church to rediscover that marian mystery let's start with lisa
1: <laughs> okay. Let's start with, so, so, Let's start with Since we're talking about the Marian feminine,
0: exactly, thing, exactly, so the yeah,
1: woman yeah. in the room.
0: Always important.
1: Um, okay. Well, this is, you know, it's interesting when when you were when you were saying receptivity and and you know the the, the way that people react to pastoral. I think that word pastoral for a lot of people feels a little too touchy feely, right? It's mm-hmm. it's a little bit a little bit too soft, a little bit too feminine, and the great thing about Dogma and theology is we can, you know, we can, we can really uh, hold on to that. We can beat mm-hmm. people with it. I <laughs> yeah. think <laughs> one of the great, one of my great, um, my favorite things is the many of the saints had this, had um, nicknames in their time, you know, like Saint Anthony, of course, who you always see holding little child Jesus with a lily. One of his nicknames was the Hammer of the Heretics. So it's um, <laughs> really awesome when you think about it, right? Okay, because here he is, the hammer holding the Christ child. Yeah. With the lily. Well,
0: but Mary I, was stepping on the serpent, right?
1: Right, right, yeah. exactly. So, I mean, there's something about genuine theology that it always integrates the masculine and the th- feminine. Exactly. So you're seeing that with both of those things there, right? Anthony and, and Mary, that um, there's always going to be this soft, you know, what do we say? Softness, this, this receptivity. And then and then and then you know this firmness this you know the 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 kind of uh the kind of uh sternness that maybe that is right in a in a in a masculine figure right and uh um and how it plays out in our classes i mean this is interesting and i'm i'm, I'm interested to hear my colleagues hear what they would say um but um for me a lot of it is constantly remembering what um, what Balthazar brings forward in that beautiful essay, Theology and Sanctity, which is this this has to become incarnate in our lives. Truth has to become flesh. Like there's never, um, if we want to think about the that that movement of the incarnation, right? The word became flesh. Well, these words which we receive from God have to always become enfleshed in us. What does that mean? I mean, that's That's a lot harder than just, you know, I'm going to study. I'm going to I'm going to, you know, study this the night before the test. Right. It's it's Mm -hmm. it's a daily discernment. It's a daily asceticism. It's a daily, you know, it's a daily way in which we live our lives, which is, um, you know, I I mean, here I'm thinking a lot of Pope Francis's language. He's always kind of he wants to kind of um, make us uncomfortable, but in the best way. Right. Of. Of, um, of of always letting our experience be open to these truths and let them be, you know, transformed in them. And that's that's the sacramental life. That's the life um, of prayer. that's the life. And these are the things that I guess for my classes, and I do teach um, some of the classes that are more uh, oriented towards prayer, um, And that's where I go with it. Like, where are you seeing this play out in your own experience, and where are you bringing your own experience to these realities? And um, and I'll just say one other thing here that, um, I'm a you know great father follower of Father Luigi Giussani, and I love the way he talks about um, the way that we have to verify the truths of the Church in our own experience, and that 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 process of verification means that you know, it's not just enough to go around and say, yes, Mary, Mary's my mother, Mary's my mother. How do I experience Mary as my mother? Right. That's an important thing. And um, experience is not it's it's not an add on it's not um you know I, I i profess all these things to be true but you know maybe someday i'll experience them as true that that would be cool too right um, saint bernard who is our is our patron you know he he's very passionate that if you do, and in his very first sermon in the song of songs right if you haven't experienced this pray that you will that you should be burning with the desire to have these experiences cuz that's when um, the theology is going to become flush in you. Right. So that's, mm-hmm. I would say that that's um, in terms of my own classes, we're always working with, it's never, it's not to say, I mean, I'm, I, I feel like I'm really intent on my students learning theology and making sure they understand um, this discipline and, and they develop the hobby tools, you know, of mm-hmm. a theologian. But part of that process is, let, bringing themselves to the table, and then that, like I said, uh, I guess that for me in my classes, and I think this is something that we share because we we do talk about it as a faculty. We want our students to be formed in every dimension, you know, and that's and so this has to. This is never, this is never just an academic pursuit here.
0: You mentioned something really important there, like experiencing Mary as a mother, and I this is because like what you're getting at, but this notion of experience, that's a. Uh, as subjectivism or whatever, you know, like people really has, have a hesitancy towards it. But I think it's actually needed now, now more than ever. I remember reading in, in uh, Glory of the Lord, Volume 1, where, where, where both starts talking about the archetypes, right? And he talks about how we have a relationship with Mary that's even in some sense, like physical, <laughs> which was like, blew my mind. And as I'm reading this, he really helped me understand that, like, if Mary is the perfecter, like she is the one who gives the perfect descent of faith. We don't. We're all sinners. Uh, she's not. We actually need Mary to give that perfect ascent as the archetype of the church, as the perfection of the church's faith, et cetera. But then it helped me understand, like, this participatory notion towards Mary. It helped me understand the rosary better. It's not this, this, re, this praying of this is to, like, the way I always like to use it to talk about the Marian mystery is I don't see Christ perfectly because I'm a sinner. But Mary does. <laughs> and so I get a share in her vision of faith. I get her vision. I ask her, give me your vision of your son, the mysteries that you hold in your heart that you now expropriate for the whole church. Give me that. That's, that's, the, that's the experience. And that, that's the integration in the heart that is just so vital. And, and like, I hear this as a priest over and over again, especially with younger Catholics, where they know the truths. They were formed like by good, solid Catholic families now. And as a bit of but as a bit of a reactionism against maybe the the fluffiness of the eighties and nineties, experience was kind of kicked to the side. But then they say, I know everything about God, but he seems distant, judgmental, etc. So this notion of experience, I think, is very vital to say like it's not it's not just pure experience, but it's just it needs to be subjectively integrated. And that truth Mm -hmm. does take flesh in us.
1: I think that's yeah, a really yeah. important, yeah, I'll just say this and then yeah. I, I'm going to let these guys jump in, but I think that's a really important point because, you know, you have to be, you do have to be careful. You say the word experience and people think yeah. whatever just happened to me, you know, and, yeah. and the defensive experience is, well, this is the way I've lived my life. So see my experience proves theology, you know, g- the church wrong, God wrong, right? Because yeah. I've done these things that are different. And, you know, for, I and, and here actually, you know, maybe Matthew could come in because I know he's written, you've written on this, but but um but you know here when we say experience we really mean this intersection of our hearts and our lives with what god is offering so it's the it's the encounter you know to use that word encounter right it's the encounter of god in the circumstances of our lives and so what you know what i i'm urging my students to do is to seek him always in that daily encounter um and that's and that's um like we said it's going to happen through the sacraments going to come come through prayer. It's going to come through other people. It's going to come through our, it's going to come in every way, right? Because he's, he's the master of everything, right? So as we know from the lives of the saints, he enters people's lives in the most unexpected ways. And that's, you know, part of what we need to do is be open to that possibility. So when we talk about experience, it really is that, I think encounter is another term that helps us understand. It's not something that's just, um, particular to me and to what's happened to me. It's it's about me going out and meeting Christ.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah,
2: I'll just add one thing to that, which which I love. Um, and I'm going to probably get the Latin wrong here, but uh, experience it as all sort of um, etymologies and things. But one of the etymologies is ex sperare, to to wring out of something or to squeeze hmm. out the depths of, as it were. and And what that suggests is that our notion of experience as sort of subjectivist is just simply too shallow. Um, um, that in fact, the the word experience in truth means that you are actually squeezing out of your of your encounter, your daily existence, the very depths of being, right? The very depths of, of, of what you're experiencing, both of yourself, of God, of nature, so on and so forth. And so it's attentiveness to the depths, actually, that is maybe the best definition of experience. Um, Balthazar, has in Erfahrung in German, uh, it, it sort of means to journey or to travel, right? Uh, in in that sense, and so so he talks about you know to journey to the depths, right? To to sort of travel there. Don't stop, in other words. Don't don't get off the bus too soon. Which is, I think, what subjectivist experience does. Oftentimes, it gets you off the bus too soon. No, take it to the depths, because if you go there, uh, you, you you'll find something maybe that's unexpected, uh, and and you'll actually find God, of course, eventually. But, but you know. So just at that
0: point. Yeah. Daniel, since you teach pastoral theology, too, I mean, I think this is a question that probably often I think this is actually a very important question here, because really pastoral theology is asking, like, how does the church's teaching? How is it lived out? How is it guided and stuff in life? So how do, how do you approach pastoral theology with this question of experience and subjectivity?
3: Yeah. And and, and perhaps to go back to the, the earlier question as well of, yeah. of like, how do we be receptive I mean as I teach pastoral theology in the classroom it's 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 actually kind of this sterner sense of uh, in order to be more receptive first what's required of you uh, most of us north americans is is a thick deconstruction and demythologization of just about every category we're already working with. Right? <laughs> yep. Now, I often do that, practically speaking, by, let's say, if I want to read something really intense from Ratzinger. Like, I just finished a, a course on eschatology where we read Rotzinger's Eschatology, which is, it's, just, it's a landmark, it's beautiful, it's amazing, and it's, it's really a difficult text. So it's pairing some of Ratzinger's thick historical argumentation with, let's say, a reading of literature. You know, let's take Ratzinger's principles for why these visions of the afterlife are inadequate and apply it to uh, an instance of human imagination at its its peak expression in a work of literature. So we read, for example, Thornton Wilder's The Bridge of St. Louis Ray. We read C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, and we ended with Charles Peggy's The Portal of the Mystery of Hope, right? But precisely within this lens of, okay, given what Ratzinger has said about failures in eschatology to adequately uphold and express and adore the mysteries of God, right, how does our imagination line up to that? So that's to say that typically for me, the link is, is actually, I mean, to, to go back to this experience question, it's to go further into our imagination, not to reject it, but to precisely see, yeah, sure, our finite, you know, limited by space and time categories of imagination, but let's purify those, let's open those up to behold the mysteries, Right. Lewis is really great on this. Lewis is excellent. Mm. Peggy uses very simple terminology, but repeats it in a circular fashion so as to mm. make a deeper track, right? And there's something to that. Rather than just say, okay, guys, to be pastoral, you need to know Rotzinger in and out. Like, I want that too, right? <laughs> but you need to be human beings who are interesting yeah. and who know how to talk about things that's not Rotzinger, for example, yeah, right? Exactly. You've experienced that as a pastor as well. Like, what's interesting in the world? Let's talk about something beautiful. Let's yeah. think about heaven. Yeah. Mysteriously, for Lewis, right, they're more solid but more transparent, right? The people mm-hmm. in heaven, right? What's going on as a theological principle there that we wouldn't yeah. have seen if if all mythology and all imagination um, was not adequate because God is is beyond being, right? Uh, yeah,
0: yeah, that's pastoral <laughs> theology, I think, for me. Yeah, you know, I, I think I, I completely agree because like it's something I've been reflecting on. I and while it's very hard, I've learned to do a PhD while you're also a pastor. <laughs> um, it's, it's been and it's been a bit of a crazy year in my parish, and it's not. I've not got as much done as I'd like, um, but I'm also grateful that I've been doing it at the same time.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Because, like, I am looking at a pretty abstract question. In rats here. I'm looking at the at the relation. At, he has he says that the uh, the problem of the mediation of history in the realm of ontology is the biggest crisis of our day. I actually thanks to Tracy Rowland that I, I I focused on this because she quotes it over and over again. I actually emailed her and I said, It's like a it's like a Catholic drinking game. I have to take a shot every time you mention every time you quote this quote. <laughs> um, but it's actually become like the and now I can't stop seeing it in all of her. And but when I'm hearing confessions, when I'm preaching, when I'm talking to people and and in, in, in meetings about what's going on in their life, that's the question that's there. But Obviously, I'm not going to say, well, your problem is that you're overemphasizing ontology to the neglect of history. Like, that's not going to work <laughs> when you're talking to, you know, a 60 year old mom who's having a breakdown in her marriage or something like that. You know, it's like, what, what it's, do you,
2: Father, what do you give as a penance for that?
0: Uh, <laughs> read more Ratzinger. No. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, it, it's, but it's there. And I'm happy it's there because it, it's, I can then. I don't have to go to that depth, but I know it's available if it, if someone wants to go that deep, but I can do it at different, like just this weekend with the readings on Jeremiah and, and um, Jesus's words about being a fire and division. And I actually used it as an opportunity to talk about wrath and judgment because that's what love is, right? Love. And I actually used Lewis. I used Aslan as a, that he's not safe. He's, but he's good. And that these things that we pit against each other, actually can be exist at the same time what does that say to us and like how do we how jesus's words if they make us uncomfortable is a sign that we give too much to the modern notion that of of love which is actually really not love at all it's just live and let live it means that we haven't attuned ourselves to christ himself but i i do that from like my Ratzingarian perspective but i'm like i'm not quoting rats I, I quote them once in a while but i mean like uh for me, I'm really grateful that I've been doing this in the parish in some ways because it's helping me see how important these questions mm. are. And, and actually kind of, because bringing it around to all everything you guys have just said, this is, I got to be careful not to turn too much here. But because um, everything, I think these problems around experience, around some of the divisions we see in the church today, around, uh, I call, like um, when I was in seminary, my prof defined modernism as the denial of mediation. Mm -hmm. And I have like hung on to that (laughs) since then. And I think he's right, (laughs) right? That modernism as an ideology wants to deny mediation, which means your experience can't tell, God can't work with your experience. Like you were saying Lisa earlier about how, our experience of others is a way God communicates his life to us, right? Like, like just like in, encountering others is, is a, is an, is a way God mediates himself to us. Well, modernity says, no, that's not possible. Like it, it's, it's really, it's made a rift between uh, our life and history and the transcendent in God. Yeah. Um, And I think that is really a big issue that we're not. T- and I think, I feel like, cause I remember in your, in the chat interview, you guys were talking a bit about, it's not really the job of community to, to move the ecclesiastical needle. I actually, I really like the response. And I and because uh, that's a conversation Larry and I have had ourselves a bit. And I think I thought, yeah, actually, that's a good point. It's not necessarily the job of community to do that. But it's our job to help people reach the depths more, I think, right? Like you guys are all saying, to get into our experience, like, and I feel like the church and many people in the church aren't doing like, I guess, I mean, I don't want to get too pragmatic, but like, how do we do this? Because like, this is like, for me, this is the problem is that we're not asking the question around mediation. We're saying, well, I don't get what I like. And so I'm going to fight this way, or I want this ideology to win out in the church. And I want things this way. What does like communio as like being, trying to refine the church in such a way as to not be so polemical? <clears throat> what does that look like? If I'm making, I'm hoping I'm making sense here. I've got a little rambly there.
2: Yeah, you know, I maybe I can jump in and and again to go back to the receptivity piece there because I do think that, um, and and Mary of course because today we're recording this on the Solemnity of the Assumption so so Mary's on our minds. Um, I think one of the issues also about modernity applied to the activity receptivity question is that it polarizes those two, whereas in fact in our experience and in reality. Uh, activity and receptivity, you know, passivity, activity, receptivity, agency. All of those things are found quite together, as it were, in a whole in this sense. And um, there's something so beautiful about what you were saying about Mary being sort of the form of the ascent of faith for the universal church. So it's not just that she, in fact, uh, as the Immaculate Conception, was the one who was most open and receptive to the whole of God's gift, right? It's actually also that she was the most entirely expropriated to be the form of faith as a whole and is in fact the most active in the church because she mm-hmm. actually characterizes the form of every believer's act of faith. I mean, it's unbelievable, right? <laughs> and that the one is, is in a certain sense for the sake of the other, but the one presupposes that one, you know, so, so it's this sort mm-hmm. of circuitous, beautiful, organic vision of, passivity and activity, where it's active receptivity and receptive action or whatever you wanna say. And and I I, I think that something that um, comes up in our classrooms a lot is that, is this notion that St. Bernard's exists not to do just education, but formation. So we sort of bring this into the classroom. You are not Mm -hmm. just, we're not just depositing data into your skulls, right? You're in a sense coming under the fire of the Holy Spirit as the professors are as well. In our contemplation of the whole because theologically uh receptivity precedes activity as it were precisely because theology derives from contemplation first first and so that's what we do and when you contemplate you are changed right it's like roca's archaic torso of apollo in looking at this there's no place that the beauty does not see you you must change your life right? you will be changed by contemplating and receiving the vision of the whole But yet, do you trust that it's precisely in that contemplation that you will be sent forth, Mm -hmm. that you will be regarded as one who is active within the kingdom? I mean, in a way that you could never expect. I mean, in that sense, and I think it's a struggle that we have in our classrooms. Mm -hmm. In other words, come into our classrooms and abandon all thought that we're going to give you this toolbox that you can immediately put into praxis right, or whatever, because these classes are going to form you. Not your yeah. skills, not your mm-hmm. attitudes, right, first and foremost, but you, the contours of your very being, your soul, right? And then you will be, in fact, expropriated beyond your wildest dreams, you know, in that sense. But that requires a lot of trust. I mean, that requires the act of faith itself. Do you believe that you will be most fruitful by firstly abandoning your dreams of being fruitful, as it were? You see what mm-hmm. I mean, right? That's yeah. sort of lifting. And so so I think one of the things that community can do is, is to be a community community. Um, that actually says, this is safe and beautiful. This is is the way it's meant to be, as it were. And we can discern together everybody's mission in the church, but firstly, by contemplating the whole and allowing it to inform the very contours of our being. So that's a little bit abstract, but I Mm -hmm. think we see it in the classrooms, just that notion of, um, it's sort of a modern word, like a safe space. But I think there really is something about one of the reasons why we reject receptivity is because it requires a lot of trust in the other. Um, And so I think that's one of the things that we try to do is accompany folks along that line, that being formed is actually going to heal you and perfect you. It's not going to annihilate you.
0: And it puts a lot of pressure on you guys because you have to, in some ways, embody this to show that it's effective and fruitful, right? (laughs) I hear a lot from sometimes people who have left the faith or atheists that they talk about, like, the meager fruits of grace or whatever, which I've never really liked as an argument as a counter argument because i don't think they understand what grace is but there's a point to it in saying like you have to see its effects to know that it's worth trying i see i see a virtue or a holiness or a charism lived in you that i've never seen before and i see something free in that i want that then it gives people that ability to say i'm gonna i'm gonna give it a shot myself
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, I guess what you're saying is we we have to strive to be saints.
0: Yeah, sorry.
1: (laughs) Which is, no, no, no.
0: I'm not sorry. Yeah, no, no, don't be sorry. But I mean, mean, to me, this
1: is the most exciting part of it, right? Because, you know, it's, uh, you know, I'll I'll come back to the Theology and Sanctity essay. I mean, not that I want to push that on people, but I kind of wish everybody could read it. It's not an easy Mm -hmm. essay to read. Um, Mm -hmm. But um, I think I think that maybe what characterizes St. Bernard's in a way is that all of us really want to realize that in our lives or let it be realized because we, we don't, it's not of our, in our power ultimately. Right. No. But to let ourselves be open, like to open ourselves and remove what is standing in the way for, for holiness to be realized in our lives. Um, and I guess I, I want to say a couple words just about, um you know how how you do this cuz you asked such a you ask such a beautiful question there father like just you know how how do you actually do this and and um you know what popped into my mind was uh, to connect it a little bit with your studies like with with um with Rotzinger, um is the, is the fact that both Uh, both Pope Benedict and Pope Francis have kind of uh, privileged one saint in this time, which is St. Francis, St. Francis Mm -hmm. of Assisi. They both have put a lot of emphasis on him. And um, I'm just thinking about this one place I was trying to think of where it is. And, and I'm not sure if it's Benedict or Ratzinger, but um, where he says that Francis was the one who took the word at his word, right. The simplicity Mm -hmm. of like the word capital W, Mm -hmm. words W right. Like just um, the simplicity of that now, that's an answer to the mediation problem, right? Right, there, exactly, right? exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. This is what's. Be- but it's an interesting. It's so interesting to me that the, the saints of our time are very simple figures. I mean, Mother Teresa, uh, very simple. Therese of Lisieux. Like these are our saints of our mm-hmm. in our moment, and it it's really in that simplicity that you see that unity of act action and contemplation, right? That that you were talking about Matthew, like that 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 simple. You know, wholehearted, total response of the person to reality Um, and Christ, you know, because Christ is is present in the circumstances, you know, to let that kind of be the simplicity of that moment. Um, So I, I guess it's funny. This has been a thing for me lately with students. And my advisees, because another thing we do here, we, we do a lot of advising, and I guess there's a lot of it, like accompaniment of students. Um, and and I'm always trying to like kind of simplify for people because a lot of people think, well, the way to to, to get holier is to like add more things that mm-hmm. I'm doing. So I I have these advisees that are like you know, I you know, because we'll talk about goals, and they'll be like, no, I want to I want to I want I want to do the rosary every day, and I want to do adoration every week, I want more confession, I want to do the exam, and like they're like a boom boom boom, and I'm like, yeah. whoa, I'm just over. Yeah. Let's chill. And I want to say, like, let's let's subtract let's go to something simple like, and, and um. so I'll just kind of finish this up because this, you know, whatever comes to me is what I think God has given me for the moment. But I've, I've been reading about Venerable Mary Ward, who was, I don't know if you know her as a figure, but um, uh, she was someone who's very influenced by St. Ignatius and actually in the 1600s founded a congregation. It hasn't really come into realization until modern times, but founded a congregation that took the, the same, um, the the same foundations as the as the society of jesus as the jesuits but for women Mm -hmm. and i was so struck by um by something that uh she said at one point she was praying i was just reading about her life and she was praying and she had all she had so many devotions she couldn't figure out like she couldn't remember them all (laughs) so she comes to the lord and says what do i do i can't keep track of all my devotions and he says you know he basically tells her just just um just go towards those things which you which which you free you freely choose and with love. And I thought, what a beautiful simple like like freedom and love, right? How simple, how simple. Um, and I and I guess I would just say that for my students, like part of it is it's a kind of. Danny said, a deconstruction like paring down, like we're, we're we're thinking, oh, I've got a, I, okay, on the intellectual level, I've got to like, I've got to listen to Father Barron, I've got to listen to Father Schmitz I've got to list, I gotta listen to your podcast, I gotta follow Larry Chat, like you know, there's yeah. this multiplication, multi- multiplication of of things whereas i think um something that we're we're really being called to is a sort of simplicity and
0: um mm-hmm.
1: and so that's kind of one of the ways i guess that with students that um i move in the direction that we're talking about
0: right um just as a quick aside i know one of the other panelists who's coming i think if i remember seeing correctly is sister Jill goulding who is oh Canadian. yes and she's part of that congregation. Yes. Um, yes and she's I like- I know of her. I've never met her. I'll probably meet her there obviously, but uh I I saw that she's coming, which I'm very excited.
1: Yeah, about. I've been I've been reading her book and I'm really enjoying it. So she's going to awesome. be a great person to hear from.
0: Um so you know, there's one more question I wanted to talk about cuz we could talk forever, I think. <laughs> there's going to be so much talking this weekend it's going to be awesome uh and then we'll just remind people at the end here about and i got a, a little thing about at the end too about uh we could talk about the details for the conference and where to register and everything but you kind of brought up actually at the end about it, like oh i have to do baron i have to listen to this podcast i have to watch that youtube vid channel um it's a bit of a change in direction um but as you as you're, you're aware like it, it's it, communio has a hesitancy towards Technology, or at least the community. At least, let me rephrase that. The 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 what I would find is often that the big figures in their criticism of Communio tend to push away from not just tech, they they critique it, but then tend to. Be very hesitant to adopt any of it at all. One of my big beefs is that the Communal Journal is not fully available online. For like, I get it in Canada, but it takes like a month extra long for it to ship to me. So everyone's already read it all already, and I'm still waiting for my copy to arrive. You know, uh, um, but the fact is, like for me, I've I've always I've always been hesitant. with the, I think there's a I think there's a place for criticism, um, but at the same time, it's part of reality. <laughs> It's part of the real, like actually my beef against a lot of the way people push against technology is they, they treat the words like digital and virtual as if they're unreal. But the fact is they are real. (laughs) Like I'm talking to real people right now in a maybe heavy mediated way, but um, I'm talking to real people right now. At least I hope I am, (laughs) unless you guys are really good at AI there, Uh, (laughs) you know, but I think because you guys are using technology for this conference, you're using Zoom, you're using, and you're finding ways for those who can't be there in person. Uh, I can say, like, it's not... Like, I had to kind of almost do, like, a little detour to visit some friends for some study time in order to get there more easily because coming from the West Coast of Canada, Rochester, it's like very hard to book, like, proper flight patterns to get there. Um, but you're using technology, and you seem to be embracing it. How, how do you see technology and the community school coming together how do you see the role of technology in education and formation um yeah like just uh give us your thoughts but we'll start with daniel we'll start with daniel
3: i knew you were gonna do that um, yeah <laughs> well i mean first first a super practical point so i i worked at comunio for a little while um yeah. from like 2016 to 2019 roughly yeah and uh, I, as a graduate student who was reading and citing Communio all the time, and who had access to the storehouse, was still very upset about the accessibility of articles. <laughs> and very <laughs> practically speaking, um, someone needs to make a large money donation to Camuno, gotcha. and then they'd be happy to <laughs> to pay someone like me to scan and make things more available. So part of yeah. it is just the time issue, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. This digitally, so that so that's part of it. But this is always actually, uh, this is a pretty unbudging response on the part of Communio figures, you know, particularly the editorial board, the Schindlers and and Dr. Walker Mm -hmm. and, and Dr. Healy. It's part of part of the charm for them and part of the nature of Communio that as a sort of local community coming together to think and discuss that in some sense comunio has to be so particular and when something is so particular as a, as a theological person is for example it's also just like <laughs> communicable i don't know that that serves as a good excuse in in mm-hmm. in the era of wanting to cite things as a graduate student who's not in washington dc right but in some sense it's 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 at least a, a charming feature and a reason that um part of comunio's nature is that it be inaccessible unless you're in it right that is very difficult as someone who wants to read and, and access the journal. And they're in fact very friendly if you email them asking for a particular article that they'll, that they'll make it available. But this, this, this critique of technology in general, is it actually for the John Paul II Institute for Comunio itself, centers on these questions of receptivity and mediation and precisely what technology does in the very first moment that it mediates something uh, going beyond its sort of local origin and, and precisely, it centers on the issue of taking something that was first received from above, for example, and making it graspable. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the sort of principled starting point by which, by which the critique comes. Now, practically speaking for us as professors, we don't like to think of the use of Zoom, for example, as simply a concession to the times, right. Right? because right. our goal is to encounter people and that's the way by which they, are, they can be mediated to us.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And God is not limited in his grace to transmit an education over Zoom or even asynchronously in some of our most you know, extreme circumstances, right? So there's a great beauty to that, but it's also precisely our charism as an institution to be a little bit liquidated or transmittable in that sense. And, mm-hmm. But it's not everybody's mission. Yeah, that's that's, I suppose, what I would say. I would actually I would stand with Comunio on their critique of technology that in some mm-hmm. sense something is lost when you mediate in so many ways, right? When you turn all of us into into pixels, even though we we can sort of, but we have to recognize as well we're simulating eye contact. There is a slight mm. delay, however imperceptible, right? And so, of course, upholding the fact that that the form would be, you know, to be able to shake hands and hug and 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 notice your body language, but also that something beautiful happens uh, through and despite those things. So that's yeah. I suppose that's what I would say to start. Yeah.
1: I used to be an organic farmer, so I, <laughs> I'm probably um, the most Luddite among us here. <laughs> However, I would like to say that um, the critique of, of technology notwithstanding that is in the pages of Comunio and like, um, like Danny, I would say is important, um, I, I think. You know, I think that there we need to be able to speak to people, however they're willing to, s- to speak to us today. Because I've got mm-hmm. a bunch of young adults in my family now that are my children,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: you know, one of the first things I realized, you know, in my Luddite days, was I need an iPhone because they're all i messaging me <laughs> like that's where everything was happening, right? Mm-hmm. Was was at the level of of messages, you know, and mm-hmm. and still I'm not I I'm this is no this is no uh, Apple ad here, but like, but <laughs> I want to say that I, I made that decision, you know, it was hard because I was coming from that background of like, oh my gosh, I, you know, I, I wanted to say track flip phone for the rest of my life and everything. But I, I realized that, you know, th- these are the, the, you know, my children are, are the first, the, the first ones given to me for me to evangelize, like before my mm-hmm. students, before, you know, anybody who's out there, it's, these are the ones who've been given to me. And so, and this is where they're at. So I have to go to where they're at. And, um, and I think we see this in the saints, um, the, sh- in a way, the saints always shock us with their, um, I mean, Maximilian Colby, whose feast day was yesterday, um, you know, was, was on the very cutting edge of, of, of printing technology at the time, mm-hmm. right? And so, I mean, they're, they're often on the edge. Um, and I, and I don't think that, that he, Maximilian Colby would for one second, uh, do a resolute defense of technology, um, mm-hmm in all all ways, but to say that this is where we have to be and and kind of leave the the larger questions to other people, i think I think he would be willing to do that.
0: Mm-hmm. Matthew?
2: yeah, so so maybe just to say this, I, I mean, when I was a student at the j b two Institute and having a lot of community editors, for example, as professors, things like that, um, I have to say the overriding uh, sense that you got dispositionally was not a discouragement to ever use technology,
0: mm-hmm.
2: but be aware of its impact. It is not yeah. a neutral force in, I mean, maybe you could argue in, in the sort of Thomistic sense that it's neutral morally in itself, apart from a personal actor. Okay. Like whatever, all those distinctions being there. However, just this notion that every human tool impacts the user. Mm-hmm. And I think it'd be dangerous to think that that wouldn't happen. For example, I mean, Wendell Berry's point about moving to tractors, right? Versus that that changes the art of farming, Mm -hmm. Um, the use of the hoe versus squatting, right? Even that changes the human body in the sense that we can't squat anymore, right? You know, every tool affects it. And I think dispositionally, that's what was so beautiful about what I received there was this notion that... um, the universality of Christ and coming into contact with Jesus Christ allows us to, in a certain sense, discern all things, right? Test yeah. all things, as yeah. it were. And there is no thing in our lives that is neutral with regard to our relationship with Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, everything must be discerned. And I think that yeah. I think that one of the big things for me is, just w- what is so hard is that it, it it is not a blanket condemnation. It is also mm-hmm. not a blanket yes.
0: Mm-hmm. The
2: most difficult thing is that it's prudential. Yeah, that is the hardest thing. In right. full knowledge of its non neutrality in terms of its yeah. impact, that for me is is just is is just unbelievably difficult. So in and that might change by the way, mm-hmm. person to person. If you have an addictive personality and your dopamine levels are spiking, you might have to put the phone down for hours a day. Mm-hmm. To say you know. Um, for example, if you're having sleep issues, so on and so forth, right? So it, it can even vary from person to person in terms of the use of technology. That's the hardest part for me, I suppose. Yeah, yeah that's
1: I, that's, a, that's a super important point about discernment. And I, I I should say that I didn't mean to suggest that Maximum and Colby would be like forget the discernment, but but no, I do no, think no. that there's the kind of there's kind of an edge. We're kind of we always have to kind of stay on uh, aware of wh- where God is at work. You know, that's that's that. But this is great. That's a great. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you said, Matthew, is important. Yeah.
0: Ratzinger talks a bit about this that he he thinks that one of the great horrors of the age is technological process without ethical thought right like this is that we're not they need to be balanced with each other and I, I think he's he's we, we keep we can do this therefore we must is is kind of the ethics of today which is not based in truth or anything it's just based in 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 um, in in yeah, it's just based on I can do this. And, and that's dangerous. And I think we, we don't – and this gets back to the whole receptivity thing. We're not reflective. We're not asking the questions of the experience, et cetera. And I think I, the reason I ask it is because, like, uh, you know, we have – this podcast exists because of Twitter initially. Like, it was, a, it was a thing we just thought it would be fun to do, and it kind of just took off right away somehow, right? Like, and my, my – like, I've got a pretty decent following on Twitter. It happened – just happen. I just tweet what I think, like, because I have, I am in a very obscure place with, like, no theological uh, engagement at all. I have to build my own theological library because I have no access to anything here. And so Twitter became, like, this. because I'm an external processor, so Twitter became this place of, like, I need to get this thought out of my head somewhere, and so there it is. And I, and I like, I, we, I went to the Notre Dame Fall Conference a few years ago, and I did a panel with Sister Teresa Althea, my friend Shannon and Father Anthony, on digital friendship or friendship in a digital age mm-hmm. we're all very good friends but we all met through twitter initially right and there was something good there right so and even pope benedict in in his comments on world day of communication talks about the internet as a digital continent so there's even like a by that phrase itself there's a bit of a he's in talking a bit about a sense of embodiment with internet itself right and i think there's there's a lot of questions we have to ask it because i also think you're right uh matthew that that um, like the phrase I've always used about the tech digital technology at least is that it mediates immediacy, <laughs> uh, which is, and if that's not reflected upon enough, that gets very dangerous. I think you see a lot of the issues of that today. Right. So like, cause like even for myself, like my iPhone is both a blessing and a curse and I'm like getting closer and closer to wanting a, a phone that gives me maps, texting and phoning. And that's all I want. Uh, I don't have many apps on my phone. And I actually I phone people more now. I hate talking on the phone, but I actually phone people more cuz like we're texting too much. Like, let's talk on the phone, this is faster. So like we we need to be ref- I think as a church we need to be asking these questions more cuz I'm like for me actually the big experience was like so with COVID, you know, things shut down. My first reaction was get think, get streaming set up. And I was like I was set up the next day. I had my computer going and my church. And then I, I and then when I got moved and then in my new church, what I did though was like, I said, okay, we're gonna do the streaming thing, but I really want to encourage people to come to the parking lot. We put out Wi-Fi extenders and everything. So like, there's like a bit of a sense of a, a physical closeness with the mass, all that separating use is them all. And then I'd give out communion afterwards. Cause I want to emphasize this idea that community is not separated from the mass. They're meant to be one thing, um, but like looking back, I don't think I would stream again if something like that happened. I don't think that, I don't think that was valuable or helpful. Because I heard in like especially an older generation, yeah. Well, I can watch mass on my computer or TV, or I can watch mass in person. Yeah. They couldn't. They. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like that's not what happens here. <laughs> There's not a, this reflection, and I and I and I thought that was a real danger actually. And like I, you even hear in confession, oh, I didn't watch mass on Sunday at home. <laughs> I'm like, that's not a sin. <laughs> like. So like for me, I'd like to say, let's pray the liturgy of the hours. Like, do something, emphasize it in the home or something like that. And so I think, I, I, and I, I think for me, the reason I, I ask this thing around communion too is, is, the fact is though that this is the main modes of communication, what people are used to today. I think, and I just wonder if it can embrace it a bit more as a means of communication to get its message out there a bit more. Like I try to do that through the podcast. That's that's my school. That's my jam. So whenever I'm talking, that's it. Uh, I try to do it through Twitter, and I just hope and pray that others can you know, experiment, try it out. I agree it's a prudential judgment in the end because, but we need to be asking more questions of it, but not, I, I guess my fear is that sometimes it's like, we're just going to stick my head in the sand and we're just not going to worry about the internet. I don't think that's helpful. I'm not saying that that's intentional or anything. It's definitely something I experience sometimes. And I do think like the younger school of communal theologians, we we take that question more seriously at least, so.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I love that. and I And I think that's, it's almost like, bioethical issues, you mm-hmm. know, we have, a, we have a decent bioethics program here at St. At Bernard's for this point, is, the, is that because of the pace of technological advancement and, and medical advancement uh, in research and in practice, uh, there's a lot more burden upon the individual Catholic to actually have a well-formed conscience in these areas, right? Yeah. For those prudential situations where when everybody's grandmothers and parents are entering, you know, you talk about, okay, well, you want to make sure that the morphine dose is not actually killing that. You see what I mean by right? all, all these, how do you talk to doctors about this so on and so forth? That requires a lot of formation to be able to be competent ethically in those situations, even though they are some wild situations, right? The stakes are so high. Nevertheless, there's a lot on the individual in that way. And I know, uh, depending on where you are, there's not always a Catholic chaplain or Catholics you can trust to assist you in this way. Hence, the National Catholic Bioethics Center's hotline is such a beautiful ministry in that sense. You can just call up and say, what do I do? You know, help. I think it's a similar thing with technology. The question for me would be, what are we doing as a church to help shepherd and form people to be able to make informed decisions about how they're using technology in the practicals? You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, in other words, like, like, should I actually, uh, I mean, for us, what, one of the things that we encounter is should I go to a program that is synchronous or should I go to an in-person two-year program at a school? You know, is that, is this something that's going to be good for me or not? Mm -hmm. Uh, but then same thing with other things, you know, am I going to actually get lost in the sauce if I'm, using and having a whole diet of media, you know, podcasts, things like that? Uh, Or should I really focus in my life, even if it's for a temporary time, on really reading physical books or encountering people, going to coffee shops, you know, so on and so on, meeting with friends, like you're saying, calling people on the phone. That's that's an exercise that one could implement in one's spiritual life that is not a a sort of back room that's unrelated to everything else, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. a practice of actually building into your sort of like life plan. I am going to call, whenever a text conversation exceeds three messages (laughs) or four messages, I'm gonna call them, you know? That's a very difficult spiritual exercise in some sense, but it might recapture something of a prudential balance. So I don't know, you know know what I mean? I I think those questions need to be asked about, again, the question goes back to how are we being formed and helping form other people to be these sort of uh, agents of decision-making and and discernment-making in daily life? Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: I heard someone's email. I heard someone's calendar notification go off. Speaking of technology, probably warning them over their next meeting. So, um, uh, so maybe we should just wrap it up. So, um, so uh, when's the conference, and how can people register? Uh, yeah. The, any love of those it. last so details? Yeah.
2: Exactly. Conference September thirtieth to October second mm-hmm. up here in Rochester, New York. As Danny said, uh, we would love to have you in person. Relatively accessible for a a smaller. Mm -hmm. yet major city. And it's going to be beautiful. The the leaves should be quite gorgeous at that time of year. It's it's going to be beautiful fall in upstate New Mm -hmm. York. Um, And one of the things that we pride ourselves on, I didn't really mention this uh, much at the beginning when I was talking about details, but uh, a Communio conference would not be a true Communio conference if there was not emphasis on hospitality, actual engagement together as a community. So as much as the talks are sort of the centerpiece of the whole thing, Mm -hmm. there's also so much time that we've set aside for dinner, meals, the time between talks are, is pretty generous, right? For yeah. a lot of that sort of friendship building to take place. And then finally, uh, a lot of people that attend, because we've had two major academic conferences in the past year or so uh, at St. Bernard's. And one of the things that people say when they come away is they feel like this conference was an intellectual retreat. Yeah, And that's something that we really, really love. Because you can't talk about communio without receiving communio, right? The communio of the mm-hmm. Father, Son, and Spirit liturgically. Uh, and so we have a chapel here on campus with the, the Eucharist in repose. And so awesome. we'll do morning prayer, adoration, mass, so on and so forth, and then and then um, candlelit Vespers at the end. So that's, awesome. that's really quite lovely. And um, you can visit to register stbernards.edu, or if you Google St. Bernard's and Communio Conference, you'll be able to navigate right there. Mm-hmm. Um, attendance in person and online is, is pretty affordable, like Danny was saying. Mm-hmm. So we would love, love, love to have you guys here. And again, we're trying to make it such that if you have no experience of Communio at all, just come. That's mm-hmm. part of it, right? Just to come and just bask in it. And it's not going to be incredibly technical. For example, mm-hmm. Father, Survey, uh, uh, Father Survey's talk is going to be essentially his recollection of hanging out with the founders, right? <laughs> Balthazar, Ratzinger, De box So there's going to be a lot of wonderful personal stories told. Um, so, But then there will be something for everybody, right? If yeah. you're interested in the metaphysics of being and, and being as gift, come, there will be plenty of that as well. So...
0: I think the hard thing is going to be is like, yeah, whenever the breakout sessions start hitting, it's like, which one do I want to go to? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah uh, we already
1: we're already talking about that here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, yeah, actually, just as a, a little side, I I did I went to the a friend of mine suggested that I go to one of the summer classes that the Casa Balthazar was hosting many years ago, yeah. uh, and so I I was with Father Survey for two weeks, and it, he is an incredibly humble man. Like when I was there, I had no idea to his connections to anyone or anything. And the Casa lives out communion with theology itself in a very beautiful way. Also rooted in, in the exercises because he's a Jesuit. Um, but I was uh, my I always like to I always say to friends and stuff. My one regret in life was I was there and it was a very intense experience of Greece, actually, like so much so that I actually kind of ran away almost like everyone's on their siesta We're in like the northern near the Alps. And uh, there's like this house. In this like hotel, and that's it. And so I, I packed my bags. Quiet. It was just very. This is just very intense time, and just I just couldn't take it for whatever reason. You know, that's usually how Grace works. Sometimes it get, it gets uh, very intense, and I go across the street to the hotel, and I ask in very broken Italian when's the next bus. And as I turn around, there's Father Survey sitting at the table, and uh, I kind of had a you know a little breakdown. We went and had a beautiful chat, and in that time, I actually thought. I actually really the experience like election. That's I was in seminary at the time and I, was, I experienced a bit of an election to say, go to the Casa for two years. And I didn't, it's my like one little regret in life, but I'm so I'm actually looking forward to, to seeing him there because, um, I, I still hold and treasure the memory of those two weeks. Uh, he is a very holy man and, uh, it's going to be really great to see him. And I think it, uh, hearing these stories is going to be really valuable. Um, and so, and just, and for those who are interested, so if you come in person, I'll have up to three free copies. I'll sign them and everything of Hysterion. So if you come in person and you listen to the podcast, uh, email me confirmation of your personal registration. I'll make sure to bring a book for you. And I'll do also one, uh, free mail out for the first person to email us a digital registration or something like that. So, uh, I'll have four total to give out for free, um, I really want to encourage people to come in person, uh, and uh, I think it'll be a really, really amazing time. Uh, I, I can't wait for it. So, thank you all three of you for for coming on, and uh, uh, and uh, we'll see you all uh, next week. So, God bless.
2: See you soon, Father Harrison. Thank, thank
1: you, you Father. And- thank you.